and just kind of stick a finger in that part of the Bible. This morning is one of those odd mornings where it's a little bit more teaching than preaching. I'm going to do the best I can, um, but, and we're going to flip through a lot of passages today, but they're going to be up on the screen. I want you to just stay in Acts, though, all right? Just focus on that. That's what's going to do most of the lifting for us today. Um, my name is Luke. I'm the lead teaching pastor here, and it's good to have you at Legacy. We've been going through a series on the book of Galatians from the very first verse all the way to the very end, and we are almost done. We're like within throwing range of being finished with the book of Galatians, but we're pausing it for the 15th time. We're pausing the book of Galatians, and we're going to take a good, hard, sturdy, thorough look at the Holy Spirit and His activity today. Um, We're doing that because Paul has been talking in Galatians about what it looks like to walk in the Holy Spirit. So we felt like this was a good time to kind of detour and go to a confusing part of the Bible for many people, filled with mystery and deep hesitancy, mixed with more confusion, stacked with even more confusion on top of that. I mean, it's a pretty hot topic. You get to things like the Holy Spirit, His baptism in fire, right? Tongues, prophecy, teaching, hospitality, administration, service, wisdom, knowledge, discerning of spirits. What these things, and I don't just want to talk about these things in and of themselves, but what do they have to do with you? What what does prophecy have to do with you? What is dreaming a dream or having a vision, what, what does it have to do with you? What does it have to do with the city of Knoxville? Or the gospel. We always chase everything. Every, every passage has a road straight to the gospel. And that's the filter. We read all of the passages of the Bible. But what do the gifts have to do with the gospel? And to say that this is a controversial or emotional topic is to understate it. I mean, you might as well put a wick in this and light it. You should have police caution tape everywhere with chalk outlines of dead bodies, you know, all over the place. That's, that's kind of what I've grown up with. That's the, the nature and the tenor and the temperature of a subject like this. So are you ready for it? Are you ready? You're not ready. Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay, good, good. Um, first, can I just lay down a couple ground rules? Um, because this needs it. Um, one of the ground rules is, can we all agree that no one goes to the Bible? No one goes to the text of the Bible as a blank slate. No one, not me, not you. We, we all like to pretend that we do, you know. But the truth is, is we don't. Since the time we are born, we've had things happen to us, and we've seen things, big, small, consistent, extravagant, minor. But we've had things happen that kind of shape us and build a, uh, a, like a fabric of a paradigm through which we, like a filter. We'll use the word filter. It builds a filter through which we see and through which we hear. So whenever we come to things like this, and we listen to a topic like this, or you listen to a podcast, or you read the Bible, you bring your filter with you, and you plop it right in front of you. This includes me. I am like you, and I like to feel that I do a pretty objective job of reading the Bible, realistically. I like to think that I don't have any slants or biases, but come on. I mean, if I'm honest, what are the chances of that? I think we all bring prejudices to the Bible. We bring, I don't know, preferences developed by our own personality, fears that we develop, right? 
We all bring certain understandings, certain teachings from people that we've esteemed in the past, ironed in year after year after year after year, repetitive, like, like layers of a lacquer. Over and over again, it forms this filter. Listen, if, you, if you've been abused, and statistically, many of you have, if you've been abused, friend, that, that influences how you read the Bible. It changes your filter. Um, if you are poor, it changes how you read the Bible. If you're depressed, if you're single, if you're just tired, it affects how you read the Bible. And we're all like this. John Piper's like this. John MacArthur is like this. I am like this. The big fat commentaries written by dead people with all the dust on them, they are like this. We all have this filter. None of us are a blank slate. So whenever we approach this topic, really any topic, right, but this is a good time to bring it up, we need to pray and ask God's grace to put the filter down. We need to ask God to give us the grace to see and to hear what he intends for us to see and to hear. And it's tough for me. It means being real intentional. It means the possibility of us hearing things we're not familiar with. It means us very likely hearing things that we don't want to hear. Things that we've kind of turned off in the past. Because it's just too easy. And I am like you. It is too easy. Far too easy. To read the Bible and make the Bible submit to our understanding of how things really work in the real world. Right? rather than taking our understanding and making it submit to God what he says about him and what he says about us. You know, as a pastor, I bump into people all the time, especially in the Deep South. It's more predominant in the Deep South. Actually, it's even ultra more predominant here in this part of the Deep South than in most parts of the country where people believe something and have deep, heavy convictions just because they believe it. That's the way it is. But if you ask them to point out in the Word where it is that you get biblical justification, can you give me a passage? Can you give me a testament? Can you give me a story? Can you give me a vague landing spot somewhere in the Word that would give you any idea of whether that's true or not? They they can't do it. They struggle. It's just the way it is because it's just the way it is. And that's the way it should be because that's the way it's always been done. And they just know it because they just know it. Church should be on Sunday. Well, where does it say that in the Bible? Well, it just, it should be. That's the way it is. Forgetting that we are the church and it could, we could gather on any day, right? My favorite growing up, you shouldn't wear a ball cap in church. <laughs> where does it say that? It's just the way it is. It's the way it should be. I don't know where it's at, but it's in there somewhere, right? My appeal to you is that we do not cling with white knuckles to the filters that we have picked up and carried with us over time. We have these filters, and they're dirty with stuff, and they're polluted with things, and sometimes I think we act like it's not. I mean, every dude in here, and most of you females, most of you ladies have been to an oil change place, and you know that moment's coming where they bring that air filter in, right? You just wait, you look at your watch, you're thinking, is this the the time I make it through where they don't try to convince me that I need a new air filter, right? But no, they come in and they bring it, and it's dirty, and it's got all kinds of stuff. And don't you try to act, I, I, maybe it's just me, but I always act like I'm surprised. Like, well, that's odd. We just got that replaced, you know? I act, and there's like Cheerios coming out and a Lego fell out of it. Small animals crawling out of the air filter. And there's a big pile of dirt at the bottom. And that's how we are. We act like we don't have a filter. And if we do have a filter, we act like there's nothing in it. Like we're unbiased. Like we're the exception to the rule. 
And we could actually look at the Bible and see it with nothing leaning into us and directing how we read. But it's true. Year after year of you flipping channels and coming by CBN and seeing Praise the Lord in the 700 Club and you see Benny Hinn in all of his fabulous suits and you see James Robertson, you see these guys talking back and forth. That influences you. That's a speck in your filter, right? Your crazy neighbor who yells at devils and you hear it and he anoints his car so it doesn't break down, right? It's part of your filter. You see these things. That philosophy professor you had in school, that thing you read on Facebook, your youth pastor's best attempts or worst attempts to teach things like Acts 2, right? These were all parts of your filter, your own ideas, your own fears of what the Holy Spirit might do to you or might do around you. It forms part of your filter. It's a big part of your filter. So, and this is for free, but whenever we carry these filters to the Bible and we take what we think things should be and we build them into a passage or a text, that is what scholars or theologians, they call eisegesis. Now that's a $5 word, might be the last time I say it today. But all it means is, is we pour in or we insert into the word. And whenever you do that, you get an interpretation that is not truth at all. It's fabricated. In fact, a lot of times it's upside down. How we are supposed to read and approach the Bible is to draw out, not build in, but draw out. That word means exegesis, right? Or, or to extract from. And that's where we allow God to tell us what things should be, who he is, what he does, who we are. You see, when we build things into the passage, we get what we want out of it. We get what we lust after. But whenever we extract out of his passage, we get what he wants. We get what he is excited about. So eisegesis is for our lust. Exegesis is for his glory. And we have to be very careful. It's real easy to slip from one to the other. I say all this because this topic, second to the cross alone, is probably the most mishandled, drop-kicked, misunderstood, abused, and divided over topics of all time. Of all time. So what I would like for you to do in the next three weeks or however long we, I mean, we're, we're not going to race through this, but I don't want to sit in it forever. I want you to check, check what I teach. Check my sources. Investigate what I say very carefully. Don't take what I say for granted. Don't, don't just take it and take my word for it. I want you to scrutinize it heavily. Look at the passages I use. Write them down if you want. Look at them. Make sure I'm doing it right. I mean, I deputize all of you just to share it, everything I say, and don't take my word for anything. Go home, investigate it, and whenever you're done, turn around and investigate it again. Why? Why would I want you to do that? Because it does you no service. It doesn't do the city or this church any service either, but it does you no service for me or Kevin or for Wes or for any of our leadership to be the foundation for why you believe anything. That would be a crime. I'm not the most gifted communicator. I've heard gifted communicators, and I know what they sound like. I know I'm not, but I know I can be convincing. I can be, but I would rather the passages of Scripture be that thing that convinces you, not me. Not me. I think we do this thing real easily where we attach ourselves to a person or we attach ourselves to a camp or a tribe. And, and, and if you're like me, you listen to someone and they say so many good things, right? It seems like everything they say is just right on the mark. And so at first you look at what they say. And then after a while, you kind of take it for granted. And you assume that they're right because everything they used to say was good. 
So you stop investigating. And then after a while, you're just eating whatever they spoon feed you. And you don't investigate anything ever again. That's real dangerous. That's real super dangerous. I'm going to let you look behind the curtain a little bit. There was a um, poll taken by the Francis Schaeffer Institute of Church Leadership. And this poll was not for folks that are in the church or the church. It was for pastors. And not just any pastor, not like some emergent pastor that doesn't really care about the word or doesn't care about gospel centrality or grace or sovereignty, just, but reformed evangelical pastors. I would fit into this poll. I would be a person that might have been polled by this poll. And after a heavy poll, they found out, this institute, that 71% of pastors said that when they read the Bible for study, they regularly just look for what they wanted and they did not read it in context. Let me tell you how frightening that is. Seven out of ten, first of all, right? That means that they don't care who wrote it, who it was written to, why it was written, the culture it was written in, the mood, the literary genre, anything. They just wanted it for what they, they just got what they wanted and they moved on. Here's another one. 62% of pastors said when they prepared sermons, they rarely looked up what they did not know or understand and they just decided to wing it. <laughs> I understand the temptation behind this too. You read something, and something weird happened, and you're like, hmm, do I have to read like that whole verse? Maybe we could put half of it up there. I understand the temptation for that, to wing it. It's there for every pastor. 62% said that they regularly read into a passage what was not there in order to make it their point. So what they're doing is they're eisegesis. They're looking at it, and they're pouring their filter in it so that they can get a singular point out and do the best they can to make it connect to you. And their whole goal is to connect to you instead of get you to connect to the Word. That's a problem. Can I just submit to you to be responsible for your own theology? Be responsible for your own theology. Don't take my word for it. Don't take any, don't take any pastor's word for it. And if you find a teacher... Or if you find a preacher that is more interested in connecting with you than getting you to connect with a king. If you find a pastor or a preacher or a teacher who is, I don't know, more concerned about being relevant to you than he is about making and showing you really how the gospel is already relevant to you, you should fire them. You should run as fast as you can. Fire them. It's important. Be responsible for your own theology. I have to say that. And it's actually in the Bible. Look at Acts. He'll put Acts up on the screen. And we see this quirky little passage. At first, it was strange to me when I read it um, as a younger believer. And it says in verse 11 of chapter 17, Now these Jews, and they were Bereans, right, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. (laughs) Now this is Paul teaching them. So you have the Apostle Paul up there teaching, doing the best he can. I'm sure not very many people could go toe-to-toe with him and be as assertive and as convincing and as good of a teacher, and they're checking his sources. They're like, yeah, this is good. We'll get back to you tomorrow on whether we believe it or not. We're going to go home and read the Old Testament a little bit longer. Paul, we could at least do the same. We could at least be as good as the Bereans, right? So you have the freedom to ask questions right? We, we put the text line up here. We really want you to wear it out. If you have questions, ask. Listen, if you don't want them asked in public, email us. 
There's ways to get us all over the website. Email us. Ask. If you want sources, ask. If you want citations, ask. If you want more clarity, a deeper answer, ask. If you want to come up afterward and ask one of us as leaders, ask. We're available to you. We want to be available to you. I might not answer all of your questions as much as that's my goal. I might not be able to pull that off up here during a sermon. Some of you have what I call advanced questions, right? You might need to email that in or text it in. And I hope you can appreciate the girth and the scope of the room that we have. Some people have no idea what I'm talking about right now, all the way up to people who've graduated from seminary, right? So I hope you can appreciate it. Some of you, you just want to pick a fight. And I'm just going to say, put the gloves back on. You're not going to change our church's position on this. We're pretty solid on it. We have a good idea of where we stand. We're feeling very comfortable with our position on the Holy Spirit and his gifts. And so a shot from an email or whatever is just not going to swerve us. It's not going to do it. So just help us in that. Help us in that. Also, with that being said, this is not a separation issue for us. And what I mean when I say a separation issue is many of you might have a different idea or belief when it comes to the Holy Spirit and when it comes to his gifts, right? That doesn't mean that you have to leave or maybe even that you should leave, right? We have a lot of diversity of belief just within these walls. We don't all look at the end times the same. Most of you don't even know what you think of the end times, right? We don't all look at a lot of things the same. We've never as a church submitted that you submit to our teaching and our idea of how things are. We just ask that you submit to harmony and unity and growth in God. And that if you do believe something different and you do have a different idea that you don't go start your own little fan club, you don't go start your own little camp and then start biting and devouring as we heard in the last two weeks. God's actually not really excited about that. The division. He hates it. And it's the, it's the very thing that the devil wants when it comes to a topic like this. And this, folks, is why pastors don't preach it. This is why many of you never once heard it ter- heard, heard taught. And if you have, it was like once when you were a kid and you can't even remember it. It's because there's sweeter spots on the bat to swing for. We could all flip to a gospel right now and that'd be easy. It would be very little provocation. No texts coming in. This is hard. But we have agreed as a church staff and leader board and group of elders that we would teach you the full counsel of the word, even the hard stuff. Even the provocative stuff, even the stuff that might clear out the room. That's our calling to the city, is to teach all of the Bible, to teach the full counsel of the word. So, can we agree to hear with no filter, to let the Bible interpret the Bible, to ask questions, and to live in harmony? Can we agree on that? The ground rules? It's the longest preamble in sermon history, wasn't it? You're already sweating. I'm not going to take much longer, right? The reason I have to take that much time is I'm going to have to remind some of you again. I'm going to have to do it. Some of you are going to come and you're going to want to fight. Some of you are going to come and you're going to be upset for this and think that, well, if you believe that, then we can't do life here or I can't do or whatever. And I'm just going to, I'm going to have to take you back to this moment and remind you of what I said. So it's good that we spend time on it. And not just on this topic. Check my sources on anything. Check John Piper's sources. He doesn't mind. If you don't like what Mark Driscoll says, check what he says. He doesn't care. He'd rather you do that, actually. It's okay to do that. So not, I just felt like this was a good topic to at least bring it up. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12, and we're going to jump in. 1 Corinthians 12. This is Paul talking to a group, 
people in this church of Corinth. It's um, one singular church. It's not a group of churches like what we've been looking at in Galatia. It's a singular church of people in the city of Corinth. And he says this, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. All right? Why? Because being uninformed, it does two different things to us. We abuse what we don't understand, and we have a bias against things we don't understand. If we're not informed against things, we abuse it. Proof? Go to a Little League baseball game. I coached a little bit in one season. As a baseball fan, that was a struggle for me. Those kids don't know the rules, right? And they abuse the game of baseball. They crowd the plate. They run with the bat. They slide in the first. You don't have to slide in the first. They don't steal right, you know. It's a total mockery of the game that is baseball. And the only thing that helps you keep your lid on is the fact that they're like six, you know. But they just don't know. And the Corinthians were like this. It was like they're in a Little League game. They just didn't know all of the rules. And so Paul has to deal with this. And he, in fact, says at one point, two chapters later on 1 Corinthians 14, he says, you guys are being immature babies. You guys have the, you're being immature babies. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants and evil. But in your thinking, be mature. And we not only abuse what we're uninformed of, we hate what we are uninformed of. And, or at least have a bias against it. And I'm not saying that this is true for the church of Thessalonica, but it's a high probability that they struggled with the gifts of the Holy Spirit in a different way than the church of Corinth did. Because we do see Paul saying this in 1 Thessalonians 5. Do not quench the Spirit. Now, that word quench, don't think of you taking your wet little fingers and putting a wick out on a candle. That word nuances having a large, vibrant fire and throwing a big bucket of water on it and putting it out. And Paul says, whenever the Holy Spirit is doing that, don't quench it. Don't put it out. Don't despise prophecy. But test everything. Do you see the health? Do you see the metrics that they're putting together? Test everything and hold fast to what is good. We become skeptics fast when we know the least. Because the unknown just straight up freaks us out. It freaks us out. So I want you to be informed, and I want you to avoid being biased against the Holy Spirit, and I want you to avoid abusing the Holy Spirit. That's the whole reason we're doing this, right? You know, the, the Holy Spirit, being himself the most under, understood person of the Trinity, and he is a person. He's not a vibe or a life force or something that emanates from the inside or anything like that. He is a person, right? He can be grieved. Ask Paul. He can be excited. He can be engaged. He can be stiff-armed. He is to be worshipped. Now that statement makes some of you squirm inside because I said we are supposed to worship the Holy Spirit. We've grown up thinking that we worship God, we like Jesus and appreciate him a bunch, and we tolerate the Holy Spirit only when he's not being screwy, making us uncomfortable, right? And that's become our little warped, little trinity that we've put together. But I'd like to remind you that they are all one and they are all God. They're all one and they are all God. In fact, if I was to just rake it up another notch, the Holy Spirit is just as much responsible for your salvation as a bloody Jesus on the cross. Now, does that sound heretical to some of you? He's just as much responsible for your Holy Spirit as a bloody Jesus on the cross. 
Because without the Holy Spirit, there is no regeneration of your cold, dead heart. And all Jesus is, is just a really nice guy who did a really cool, provocative thing a long time ago next to a bunch of really cool guys that also did a lot of provocative things a long time ago. Just something, just a story, just a character in a book in the nightstand of a hotel, just a guy. Here, I'll prove it so you can look at these later and see if I'm right. Ezekiel 11. This is Ezekiel talking about what God is going to do. And he says, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Now what God is doing here, he's talking about a spiritual surgery that we cannot self-perform. All right? He's taking a heart out of you that is cold and it is in fact dead and it cannot respond to anything. You prick it, it does not bleed. You push it, it does not move. It is dead. It's dead. And our heart cannot even be disturbed by how disturbing we are. Your heart, when it's dead, it cannot be troubled over how troubling you are. But God, doing something you cannot do, of his own deciding and of his own will and according to his own counsel at a time where he pre-chooses, changes your heart. He does a spiritual surgery and he puts inside of you a heart that for the first time ever is able to go, wow, look what I'm capable of. Look at my guilt. And then you're able to do an about face and look at God's mercy and look at his grace and you're able to respond. Not up here, not respond with the cerebral, but respond with the visceral, the person of who you are. We see this happening in Acts 16. We don't talk about this passage much. It's a a good description, though. Um, This is Luke talking in the book of Acts. There are times where Luke speaks as if he was with Paul. That's because there are a portion of Paul's trips where Luke was actually with him, and he documents this. Um, as he saw it. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now catch this, really cool. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. You almost miss it. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. Hey, because there's paying attention, and then there is paying attention. I mean, there's hearing, and then there's hearing. How many of you grew up hearing the gospel, and then you heard the gospel? That's That's what we're talking about. That's regeneration. That's the difference right there. We see it happening in real time with Lydia. It says this in Titus 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, there's a great gospel in this. It just stands on its own. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Three weeks after I became a Christian, I started a campus ministry. Me and my me and my roommate, and we called it Regeneration Campus Ministries. This is why, this passage right here. We didn't understand a lot. We understood regeneration, though. We understood God just snatching us out of death. Listen, without the Holy Spirit's investment in your salvation, there is no salvation. I'm trying to recast how you see the Holy Spirit, brick by brick. And some of you, it means wrecking what you already know. The and I'll try to help you a little bit more. The first time we see the Holy Spirit in the Bible is actually way back in Genesis. Genesis 1. It says that the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, the chaotic deep, that pre-creation, that young creation. But then from then on in the, in the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit 
descending and then ascending. He comes and then he leaves. He comes for a little bit, something cool happens, he leaves. He's transitory. He doesn't stay until he does. Until Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism, God thunders down, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit comes and he doesn't leave. He stays with him. In fact, now we get to see what it looks like for the rest of the Gospels when somebody walks in the full power of the Holy Spirit. He, in fact, writes our playbook for us. We see it. He's not moving anymore. He's not coming and then leaving. But then after that, it gets a little mishandled, does it not? After that point, it gets confused for people. I mean, right now, no one's texting in any questions, most likely, right? We're all cool still? Everyone cool? It's not hard. It's not real controversial. But I would like to jump in into a place where the Bible talks about the first time that the Holy Spirit baptizes the church in power and in fire, because it for sure is a hot spot. I'd like to talk about Pentecost. That's all we're going to have time for today, all right? I'd like to talk about Pentecost because it's going to be very helpful for some of you. Some of you don't know very much about it. Um, It is a day where God changed everything and showed the world that nothing would be the same ever again. It is a unique day. It is a unique moment in God's redemptive history. It is a threshold in history. Pentecost, it just means 50. Penta means 50. Because seven weeks after Passover, 49 days, on that 50th day afterward, they'd have a festival, right? They'd have Pentecost. That's also when the barley harvest was, was finishing. So there's a lot of barley around, a lot of happy people. They're not doing whatever they do to get barley ready. Apparently that's done. So all that works. To, and now, if you're all over the known world and you can pay for it and you're able to get to Jerusalem, every, all the Jews came to Jerusalem. If you're a Jew and you live out in the diaspora or you live further out and you can afford it and you can get to Jerusalem, you go. So it's this unique time where you had Jews from all over the known world there, right? All with different languages, different dress codes, different dialects. Everything was different. It looked like a conference, you know, I'm sure. But they were all Jews. And because there's so many people there, you had a lot of non-Jews there. Because someone's got to rent the cars at the conference, right? Someone's got to pour the drinks. So there was a lot of capitalism, a lot of money changing hands. This big po- It was just a big buzz in the city. That's what's going on. That's where this happens. And by this time, Jesus had already died on the cross, had already come back to life, had already visited his but his closest followers had already taught them for quite a while on what the new kingdom was going to look like. All of that's already happened. And he actually told them to wait. Wait in Jerusalem? Wait. Wait for what? For new power. For new power. Acts 1-4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then four verses later in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, catch this. This is where God is doing something different. This is really cool. This is where God is doing something different because originally, in order for a nation or a people to be blessed, they had to come to Jerusalem. The Bible would talk about how rivers of water, the nations would be like rivers of water flowing towards the mountain of Jerusalem. And if they wanted to be blessed in God's eyes, they would need to join the nation of, of Israel with the Jews and be one of the Jews. But everyone, all the scattered nations had to come. That was the idea in the past. We could actually see this in Micah 4. I'm going to put it up on the screen. And this is also repeated almost word for word in Isaiah. 
It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us in his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So catch the imagery here. These scattered nations all collecting, all pooling together. That's where blessing was found. Now God is turning that upside down. Now he's scattering. Now he's taking a unified people and he's sending them out. No longer do nations have to come to hear the good news of the law. Now God's new people, his new nation, not a physical but a spiritual one, are going out not to bring the law but to bring a message of grace. He's flipping it. He's flipping the mode in which grace even comes. That's how important this day is. Initially, God's people were being still, and now they are being sent. You've got to catch it for the uniqueness of what this day is. There's a reason. I'm going to get to it. Let's all look in Acts 2. You've probably already been there for a while. Your finger's there. Let me get my Bible. Um, this is going to be, we're going to read the first 12 verses, and that alone. Man, about seven years ago, I dropped coffee. I was sitting at Starbucks and had this in my lap with a grande whatever, and it went boop right there. And so now my whole Bible is brown right here looking at it this morning, but it still smells like coffee, you know. <laughs> Years later. <laughs> Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, just like Jesus told them. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It doesn't mean that it was a mighty rushing wind, okay? And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Okay, pause. Is that freaky or what? Y'all have heard that so many times, it's just not freaky anymore. Look at how freaky that is. That's super freaky. Listen, if that happened in here right now, y'all would think that something was wrong with the sound system, right? What is it? What is that? And then if you saw like balls of fire moving around, half of you would scramble for your kids back there in the children's ministry and be in your car in less than 30 seconds. This is freaky stuff. Think about it. Put yourself there. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Well, what does it mean? Because that's important. What this means changes how we look at the Holy Spirit. What this means can help us not abuse gifts it can help us not abuse the person of the Holy Spirit, what this means. It's important. And just to, again, for free, historically, God had already done something to point to this. This has already been forecast. This is all according to plan, right? Benny Hinn did not invent Pentecost. It was not his idea. 
right? It's not the 700 Clubs or Charisma Magazine. Or, they did not come up with this. This is God's idea right according to plan. There is this peculiar story way back in, in Genesis, I think Genesis 11, called the Tower of Babel, not taught on very often, right? Where you had this large, rebellious people that wanted to build a city for their own glory and in this city have a tower that reached to the heavens for their own glory. But they were rebellious people. But they spoke a singular language, so they got a lot done. Communication helps us get the job done, doesn't it? So when everybody's speaking the same thing, and everybody's picking up what everyone else is putting down, and we all understand each other, this stuff gets done. And that's what was going. And where did they inherit this singular language? From their parents, Adam and Eve. They had a singular language before the fall, after the fall. They had one language. This is the same language over time. People have gotten wicked increasingly where all their thoughts were only evil continually, the Bible says. And now they're building a city for their own glory. It says this in Genesis 11. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves or else we'll be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They were rebellious people. And so what God did is he confused their language into multiple languages and scattered them into multiple nations. All right, you see him doing that? This day of Pentecost forms a reverse Babel. He's reversing it. He's reversing it, where people aren't rebels anymore. And now they're coming with different languages, but it's not for their glory anymore, it's for God's glory. And now a new city is being built, but it's not for the glory of man, it's for the glory of God. And now there's no tower needed to reach the heavens because heaven has come down. And heaven is a man who has come to us to do life with us. Do you see this? Now that the tongues, now that tongues are here, they're not a judgment against the people for their rebelliousness. Now these different tongues are coming as a confirmation and an affirmation that God is doing something radical. He's doing something very new. He's changing something. Never would things be the same again. That's what we have here. This was God's idea. And it looks crazy, does it not? Can we just be honest for just one second and do church? That is cra- this is crazy stuff. It looks weird. This looks strange. Too strange. But it is God beginning the process of sending, planting, scattered churches, scattering his believers to the, just the, the known world to build a new nation a deeper nation, a wider nation that crosses boundaries. And he was doing it with this big production. He was stamping his approval on it to show us that there is a new age that has started. In fact, we are still in that new age today. We are still part of this new age. Right? So here's the classic error that a lot of people make. And listen, I am going to be touching on some errors. It's going to feel like I'm harping on one error more than the other. You need to know that I'm going to try to hit as many as I can. I'm not taking a side. Listen, I don't have a side to defend here. I'm not trying to defend a camp. I'm not even trying to defend God. I think he can take care of himself. This was his idea. But there is a pretty classic error that comes whenever we look at the day of Pentecost. And one is, is that millions of Christians all over the world, and I used to be one, millions of Christians all over the world look at the day of Pentecost not as this beautiful, unique day, this hinge, this transition in redemptive history, but millions of Christians look at it as just a code to be cracked, a formula, something that can be normalized over time. It's not a special day. It could be any day, and it should be every day. 
where what you do is you become a Christian, but you don't really get all of the Holy Spirit until on down the road, when you've got a little bit more faith, right? On down the road when you're a little bit more mature, and then you ask for it, and hopefully there's some people there that can put their hands on you, and then you pray and you really ask, and you know when you've gotten the Holy Spirit whenever you started speaking in tongues. Not a few Christians, millions of Christians, and I used to be one, right? Hey, brother, are you saved? Well, yeah, I am. Really, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? I don't know. I would assume that I was baptized in the Well, did you speak in tongues? No, I didn't speak in tongues. Well, then you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. See how simple that is? See how easy that is? But you can be filled with the Holy Spirit if you just get enough faith. If you just believe hard enough. I mean, can you sweat when you believe? If you believe in enough to sweat, then maybe it will happen. And then if it doesn't happen, you come back the next day. Now you've got to tell us where all the sin is in your life. And, maybe, and then we'll redo it and we'll try to kickstart it and see if we can get it to happen again. Listen, I've been on both ends of this table. It's a disheartening place to live. And what it does over time is it develops a, a, a kingdom of haves and have-nots. You have the people who have. These are the super obedient ones. These are the ones that just came out of the womb with faith. Man, they're Christians early. They got it. They became Christians. They speak in tongues. All of them speak in tongues. But then you have the have-nots. When all they did is they're just saved. They're junior varsity because they just have salvation and that's it. You see how dangerous that is? This wicked caste system? We're still building cities to our glory, aren't we? (laughs) We're still building towers. It can be tough. Listen, the Holy Spirit comes in fullness, and the Holy Spirit baptizes us upon salvation. Upon salvation. Let me hope this relieves some pressure off of many of you. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian in here, You have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. There's no second occurrence. What what are you supposed to do? Get more faith? Faith is a gift, friend. Faith is a gift. This view also assumes wrongly that all believers even receive an identical gift. Which we're going to get into that too. We will get into tongues and what that means. But look in 1 Corinthians 12. This is an important verse. This should bring a lot of solace to a lot of you. It set me free. For in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body. Well, what does that mean? What, is it, what does it mean to be in a body? In the body, it means to be a Christian. You're not in the body unless you're a Christian. And how does that happen? For in one spirit we were all baptized. Listen, we don't get a partial person whenever we become Christians. We get a full person. We don't get a partial empowering. We get a full empowering. We're going to get into that as well. So while the theatrics here with Acts 2... All the smoke and fire and sound and languages and freaky-deaky stuff going on. Why all of that? For you, for me, so the world would know that God was doing something different. He was taking scattered nations and building a new nation and sending them right back out to scattered nations. Why? To build a bigger nation. For their glory? No, for God's. For God's glory. That's why. We're all, listen, we're all called to enjoy God. We're all called to enjoy. This is the highest calling that you could ever achieve to. To enjoy God and glorify him with your life. (laughs) You can't do that without the Holy Spirit. I can't do this without the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot enjoy God without the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't glorify God without the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot do it. This happens whenever the Holy Spirit helps us read the Bible. The Holy Spirit leads us in prayer. The Holy Spirit arranges situations to have heavy, heavy spiritual weight to them. Read the Bible. He does it all the time. 
comforts us in struggle, gives us courage when we need to be executives and make decisions, keeps us from folding in half. And he also empowers us and gives us gifts for the city and for each other. You cannot enjoy God without the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot glorify God without the power of the Holy Spirit. And you have gifts. You have every single one of you has gifts. No one in here does not have gifting from God. Spiritual gifting from God. No one. Everyone has one. Some of you have a lot. Some of you not so much. Right? Some of you have a lot of one gift. Some of you are a jack of all trades. Some of you have what we would call normal and not embarrassing gifts. And some of you have freaky deaky gifts, right? You have supernatural gifts. Some of you have gifts that a lot of the church doesn't tolerate. And then some of you have gifts that get a lot of attention, right? And guess who decides who gets what? Not you. God and his counsel and his design and his brilliance and in his architecture, he decides who gets what, how much they get, and what it looks like in community, which I can't wait to get to that. It's important for us. And we don't all get the same gift, even tongues. Hear me, even tongues. We don't all get that. What should grab our fascination and what should grab our imagination is not what gifts we have that other people don't have. It should be the ultimate gift that came to us. That should be the thing that grabs our fascination, the ultimate gift, the ultimate gift. God did not come to just give gifts. He came as a gift. He came in the person of Jesus Christ. So all of our giftings, whether it's prophecy or teaching or admin, some of you are very hospitable. I don't care. Whatever your gift matrix is, whatever that looks like, it is to orbit, revolve around, image, point to, nuance, shadow, the ultimate gift that has been brought to us by God himself, and that is his son. Listen, if your gifts, if they're not pointing to the person in the story of Jesus Christ, you're wasting them. They're useless. Gifts are useless beyond pointing to Jesus. Right? Well, Luke, I thought that we, we had a gift to comfort and encourage our, each other. I, I thought I had a gift to, to courage and, and comfort somebody. No, you have a gift to lead them to an encourager and to lead them to a comforter. It's not, it's not about you. It's about being led. All of our gifts should lead to the best gift. That is what gifts are for. Listen, I don't, I don't have many gifts. I, personally, I don't. I have a couple, I think, right? I'm what they call a two-talent person, right? And I don't have any mystical gifts, right? And I've prayed for them. I'd be happy if God gave me one someday. I don't. I'm not a prophet. I don't speak in tongues, and I can't interpret them either, right? Every once in a while, I'll get a vision, but that's like once every three years, you know, four years. And it's usually when I'm sleeping, and then it gets weird after a few days if I don't write it down, right? I just don't have a lot of spiritual gifts. But, but maybe one or two that I do is communication. And even in this, if I'm not leading you to Jesus and I'm not painting a portrait of the gospel, this is wasted. It's wasted. Every gift, every gift is meant to point to Jesus Christ. I cannot make that more emphatically the point for today. Listen, we... We are not good, and we're finishing here in just a minute. We are not good at receiving gifts as people, as mankind, right? We're not good at receiving God's gifts. We either try to blow it and try to earn the gift, 
right? Prove that we were really deserving of it the whole time. Like we earned it, like we were due. Because it feels like we're more empowered, like we really gave the gift to ourselves, right? So we can abuse it that way. Sometimes we get gifts, but we just envy what other people have. We just look over our shoulder the whole time, sad that we didn't get that thing. And then sometimes we're just embarrassed of what we feel like God has called us to do, so we re-gift. We just ignore it. We walk around it. We're scared to admit that we feel like God might have given us a gift because other people look down on it. You're robbing the body. I mean, God gave you that to enjoy him, to enjoy him. I can't wait to talk about that too. So listen, as we finish this, I'm going to put some questions up on the screen. Do you have them up there? Or do you have them ready? All right, there they are. I didn't put them on my notes. They're only on the screen. So what I'd like to do is this. Here in just a minute, and it's going to freak you out. It's easy. We're all right. I'm going to get you guys to break up into those little groups. I want you to look at these questions. What kind of filter do you have? And where did you, where did you get it? 